tonight on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. We have your week in IndyCar listener Q&A part one. Running a day or two late, y'all. It's been one of those weeks. And yeah, so apologize for being later than usual. Got plenty of great stuff from y'all as usual. So we're going to get rocking and rolling here pretty much right away. As always, we are going to say a huge thanks to you for taking the time to send in these questions. There will be a part two I'll try and get to maybe tomorrow, Thursday, if not Friday, leading into this weekend's IndyCar season finale, Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg. We have Road to Indy and some other support series on track on Friday. First actual IndyCar action is on Saturday, so try and get you tuned up with all the Q&A stuff you sent in. I fail to mention this as frequently as I should, and that is if I don't get to your question and you really want me to get to it, send it back in. Sometimes it takes two, three, four times. The more hostile, the follow-up, hey, idiot, hey, whatever, come on, get to my question, the more likely I'm going to do it because it stands out because, you know, I like being insulted. I don't know. My personality is a little bit flawed. going to also say huge thanks to torontomotorsports.com. They do some really fun stuff with us. Lots of t-shirts and stickers available at torontomotorsports.com related to the show. You might give them a little perusal. Other great stuff, too. A lot of memorabilia, die casts, t-shirts, just all over the place. Really, really, really love us. Some Bell Racing Helmets USA. They make our, our heads safe, and they also look pretty good, too, wearing those beautiful Bell Racing Helmet designs. And then finally, Cooper Tires. Boy, they've been with us for many years now, and it's just awesome. Really do appreciate all that they do for us. And the Justice Brothers, old family, friends, business partners, just everything about them. So love them. Really do appreciate you all. And let's get rocking and rolling. I could tell you about a million different things related to Silly Season, and we'd never even get to your Q&A. So I don't want to do that. So knowing that I just posted, what, part three of uh, our Silly Season stuff on Racer.com, there's plenty for you there if you haven't read it. Otherwise, whatever you asked here is where we're going to move in and around on the subject, starting with Chad Russell, Joe Izzo, and Ryan Terpstra. Uh, Chad says, hashtag me personally, which is the official hashtag of my little unpolished turd of a podcast and show here. Says in uh, his view, Aaron McLaren SP, they're not good people. Uh, says, it's weird liking the drivers, but not the team. Fair enough. Uh, Joe Izzo says, Aaron McLaren SP is certainly not making many fans with their driver handling since entering the series. I guess we're talking Joe probably once McLaren came in towards the end of last year. So now after a full season, basically, he says, uh, is it a Euro mentality where the McLaren side don't realize American fans are more of a, a loyal fan base to say the driver, maybe compared to the Formula One paddock where fans are possibly more loyal to the team? Uh I don't know if I would apply that here, Joe. It's definitely a great thought and parallel to throw out. I. It's been a turbulent year, hasn't it? With our man James Hinchcliffe being under contract, then not under contract, uh, with everything looking like him returning and then things not going in that direction. Uh, when you have 
pretty much the most famous IndyCar driver on the grid. Also one who I think by and large is the most popular. Uh, Tony Kanaan obviously is the other, but uh, if you have someone who is that popular to your point, Joe, and things go down in a way that don't feel very good, uh, even though this thing I've discussed more than once about the ESP and the body issue, you know, there's a lot of sponsor sensitivity stuff going on that led to this ultimate decision. Uh, no one was happy. Uh, I can't even say the folks on the team side were happy about that. So I totally understand where you're coming from here with this change with Oliver. Yeah. Uh, I'm really happy to see how much people have really embraced Oliver as a rookie and therefore the disappointment at the end of their relationship after one season would just throw this out. Joe as maybe a closer, Keep in mind that selling your sponsor's products, whatever it might be, uh, and your associate sponsors, that's the whole link to this stuff, right? The sponsors spend the money. There's a hope that there's plenty of good television coverage of the sponsors on the car, and there's a good feeling in and around things. Folks buy it, invest in it, whatever it is. There is that strong link between media return on investment through television ratings and uh, total audience delivery through streaming. Then there's also the fan engagement side directly. Hey, buy our drink or our food or our gasoline or our mobile phones, whatever. I don't know if there's a big thought here, though, in terms of, well, whether you love Errol McLaren SP as a team or don't, I don't know how much that is going to affect their approach to being involved in the sport, meaning nobody is going down to their local aero store to buy some electronics. I don't even know if I have a proper grasp of all the things that aero makes and does. So I don't mean for this to come off in a, in a negative way, Joe, but if this were a household brand, something where that company sponsoring the team was really one that is a national profile, international profile, really trying to get as many of their products sold as possible. Uh, let's say a fast food restaurant sponsoring the team might be a little bit of a different approach, might be something because there's such a direct kind of one-to-one relationship between the sponsor and fans. And the reason we're here is for the fans only. I don't know if I would position Arrow in the Arrow McLaren SP construct as being here to make you and anyone else just fall in love with their brand because I don't know if that's their business goal or model. So maybe in this instance, this is a case where maybe there's not so much of, of a real sensitivity to that. And I'm not saying any sponsor likes instability, but I can tell you that this is a case where I don't know if there was huge pushback on this topic in light of all the things we've discussed in recent episodes about the team feeling like it was being kind of under the thumb uh, from a management standpoint, some comments being made. And yeah, this, this deteriorated quickly, but I think the sponsor that they have, Joe, is one that made this change 
a little bit easier to do. Uh, the last topic here on Oliver and the Aaron McLaren SP team, I think. No, okay. Here's uh, here's another one that falls. Oh, okay, and here's another one that falls after it. I'm going to get through these as quickly as, well, there's even more. We're going to get through this. It's a lot of silly stuff, silly season items you've thrown in. Uh, Ryan Terpstra says, what do we believe came first? A handshake agreement between McLaren and Felix Rosenquist or the article that indeed uh, set things in a negative direction for Oliver. I can't tell you directly, Ryan. I don't have <laughs> I don't have the call logs or email exchange to say when the uh, why don't you come over here and drive our stuff communications began. I can tell you that the getting of things done and signed, I think, as I mentioned last week, was very recent, last Monday, from what uh, I understand. Here's the thing that I haven't put in print because I just, I don't know, it didn't seem like something that fit necessarily. It seemed a little more conversational here. As I have come to understand, Felix Rosenquist was gone at the end of the season. And I don't mean gone from Chip Ganassi Racing, leaving for Aero McLaren SP, or any other team, I mean, hey, the two years in America racing full-time were cool. I'm leaving and going away and will no longer be an IndyCar driver. Uh, I have heard this from some pretty solid areas that lead me to believe that this is the truth. And so... Were there some things that weren't exactly fitting well between Felix and the team? Yeah, yeah. Was there a desire to hold on to him? Chip Ganassi says, told me directly that there was. Now, granted, uh, Chip, like most team owners, have not always engaged in the utmost of truthiness, but I'll take him on his word here. Uh, but I do believe that while this was might not have been fully made aware to everyone that Felix was indeed planning to leave IndyCar at the end of the season. I've heard pretty solid suggestion that a very lucrative offer was made, and this is the one that really blows my mind, for him to join the brand new, yet to run, but coming up next year, off-road electric Extreme E series. So not Formula E, where he's been, but extreme E. <laughs> so, uh, as I understand it, there was a full plan to leave, go, and do extreme E. And there you go. Um, so, the article and the relationship and who talked to who when and how did this, I can't tell you the exact date and time, but I do know that uh, I have, uh, I am convinced that it took a what we have to assume was a very solid offer from Aaron McLaren SP to stay. So where exactly that fell on the timeline, Ryan, I don't know. But I do know that with what took place with Oliver, the aforementioned article, the cracks in the cement that started to build from there, um, I, I'm pretty confident, man, that when there became an apparent need to go in a proverbial different direction, 
that looking around to see who was free, available, and interested and super high quality, uh, there aren't many, weren't many. Uh, mentioned Ryan Hunter Ray as someone who I know was on their general radar, but I now, as I wrote today, uh, have 0% belief that there's anything now that's going to happen there since it appears, uh, and when I say appears, I just, it's going to happen, that he is returning to Andretti Autosport. So that takes him off the board. And I think this is just a matter that does support your general premise, Ryan, of timing. There was a need. There really weren't many, if any, drivers that would fit the youngish, talented, experienced model, uh, race-winning model as well, as a Felix Rosenquist. Got to just throw this out because I love stuff like this. I remember when I, whether I saw it on the book face or the tweeters or the where, but this was being discussed of why Felix, maybe why not someone else, and someone legitimately asked, well, why not James Hinchcliffe? He's a free agent. And uh, if I had screen capped that, oh, boy, yes. <laughs> I mean, very true. Uh, why hasn't Arrow McLaren SP, which effectively fired James last year, why aren't they going after him? Um, so not exactly able to connect all the dots for you, Ryan, but yeah, uh, I'm glad we did not lose Felix to electric off-road racing. I am glad that we're going to get to see him and Pato working together. And I cannot wait to see where those two measure up and who's where and who's the the top dog between the two or are they evenly matched so fun stuff there uh let's see jj gertler you've got a question here about oliver's management uh them establishing enormous power in nascar securing a bunch of charters uh you also lead to uh, asking whether zach brown mclaren ceo uh, made his fortune in a very similar part of the business, marrying sponsors and teams. Um, you're curious if the ask you situation might be a deliberate move to throw a high and inside pitch to Oliver's management team uh, to keep them from gaining too much power in IndyCar. Um, you also said, P.S., some of us are Penske fans, some of us are Andretti fans, and so on, but we're all hashtag Team Chabrell. Well, thanks, man. Uh, I will tell my wife that there's a hashtag team Chabrol, at least on the show here. This is one of the many reasons why I have deep affinity for you, JJ Gertler, because you do not put borders around your thoughts. You just let them run rampant. And sometimes we are gifted. Let me see. Uh, how many is this? 124 words of just awesome sauce there's yeah let's use a term that's 20 years old for no reason it's awesome sauce jj it's completely crazy but that's okay we we welcome these submissions i am unaware and i'm sure someone will tell me that i'm wrong but i am unaware of oliver's management group having any real power in the indycar world i know that they represent a driver or two but uh, I would not consider that significant power unless we were talking representing Scott Dixon and Joseph Newgarden, the top two drivers in the series, but they don't. 
So I don't see the angle here, but I love that you do. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to Ross Porter. This is Marshall James Hinchcliffe reiterated his thoughts. If I can maybe refry my brain so I could say reiterated, reiterated his thoughts on the need for a driver's union after the news of Aaron McLaren SP, also known as Spam, uh, releasing Oliver Askew. His biggest concern was for young drivers withholding injuries from teams for fear of being made to sit out and then being easily replaced. What are your thoughts on this? Also says continued prayers and peace and strength to you and your wife, Ross Porter. Thank you, brother man. So this is nothing new. I know that it's the thing that is getting a lot of attention over the last couple of weeks, but this is absolutely nothing new. The We work in a very fickle industry where there are more of us, meaning talented drivers wanting to get one of the few prized seats that are available, than there are prized seats available. So this has been going on. I know for as long as I've been in and around IndyCar, I would have to assume it's been going on for decades and eons before. This is the playing hurt thing, right? And I know in Oliver's case, we're talking concussion stuff. So that's what makes it a little bit different. But if we turn to other major sports, there's almost a badge of honor of playing hurt, not to the point to where you're a detriment to the team. I mean, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, they'll yank you off the the field or court uh, if you are definitely hurting the team. But as we hear, if you tune in and follow American football, uh, whomever is listening across the globe, it's a every player on every team is expected to be dinged up a bit and playing hurt with an ankle or a knee or a finger or a whatever ribs. And no one is 100% healthy. And if everyone truly stood out when they had whatever injury it was, there might not be games to play because there wouldn't be enough players. So that's in a more macho kind of tough guy area of the sport. Racing is really not a place where there's kind of measuring one's manhood or womanhood uh, to see who can race while dealing with the biggest injuries. But I am very aware, uh, having worked with teams where on occasion drivers were injured and we knew it, they told us to shut up, uh, do not say anything, whether it's to the series or it might even be to the team, uh, the team management, team ownership, and whatnot, and they were just going to have to fight their way through it. With something that is cognitive, like Oliver's situation, it's not, oh, man, my elbow. I, I, I smashed my elbow, and there's bone fragments, and it kills me, but I can gut it out until the end of the season, maybe have to take some shots, some painkillers, whatever it is. I'm going to get through it um, and then address it once we're into the offseason. That's not what Oliver is dealing with. So I think this is where things just become a little bit specialized in how we discuss this, Ross. Would a driver, I mean, some of you might remember Chair Hildebrand, what was it, 2012, I think, blew out his knee, one of his knees in a pre-event promotion at Texas. And granted, 
Uh, he's not exactly having to run and then be tackled or jump and dunk a ball, but this is a guy who had legitimate bad stuff taking place in his knee and being young with a, this being his best shot to have a career. He had a choice of either being out for the full year and rehabbing or pushing through. Did it hurt? I'm sure it did. Did it limit him at some points in time? Possibly. But for him, uh, it's something he felt he could live with. If we're talking physical injury, stepping out of the car, and having a short-ish period of time where you're going to be out, I think those situations a little more understood. How many times throughout the years have we heard about a driver, quote, uh, crashing his moped or her moped or a cycling accident or whatever, and more than half the time it's a complete BS made-up thing where, oh, they're going to be out and miss a race or two, they're rehabbing something because of that cycling incident. You know, it's I got drunk and fell down a flight of stairs, or I got in a fight and the guy kicked me in the wherever and that part of my body doesn't work right now. It is usually something stupid behind it. But regardless, we've seen the super sub routine for a while now, Ross, where you're going to get someone who comes in for a couple of races, hopefully not too many more, but we need to get back to the main point. Should there be a driver's union that organizes all of these things, presents drivers with a position of strength, presents something where hopefully the IndyCar series would back this and support this so that if a member of the driver's union has a need to be out of the car for two races, three races, some sort of shortish term, there should be no major risk of losing the ride, some sort of guarantee. I love the idea. The primary reason we don't have this, Ross, is in a group of, what, 23, 24, 25 drivers that are kind of the full-time participants. You cannot get agreement out of all of them to do anything. And there are some voices, maybe some older maybe some that really steer the conversations more than others. Uh, There are some voices that are very negative and against whatever it is or seemingly whatever gets brought up. And then there are some others who are big champions for such things. But overriding point, and I love this question, um, and it's why I wanted to visit on it for a minute. you got to have a coalition of the willing. You have to have a group of united drivers, a as the word implies, a union. There has to be a union, unity, unified effort. And I totally agree with Hinch that in Oliver's situation, he should have been able to go to a formally recognized driver's union board and have the main representative not a driver, but someone that is paid, like we see in every other major stick and ball sporting union. And that person goes to the series, the team, both, uh, and on their members' behalf, works out something proper. Uh, we don't have that. So should we? 100%. Have there been 50 other instances? Where- 
Ross, as I burp and I apologize, 50 other instances where a hundred, I don't know what the number is, but have there been countless instances where this exact thing would have benefited a driver, a union to step in Uh, what in formula one, we've heard about the contract recognition board that steps in when someone's getting jerked around and the team is not uh, sticking to what they've agreed in print with the driver. I mean, think about all the things that could be better for drivers if they truly banded together and united and created such a thing, did that with the blessing and uh, empowerment from IndyCar and had a real mechanism where they could send the person, whomever it is, maybe it's a lawyer, hopefully it's a lawyer, someone who's familiar with negotiations to make sure teams are holding up their end of the bargain. And if there's some sort of negative thing that's happened with the driver, could be physical, could be mental, could be whatever, that there are things in place to safeguard that driver so they don't lose their job. We see that seemingly every day, once a week, you name it. If you visit whatever your favorite sports website is, you're going to read something related to something on this front. Whatever the major sport is, uh, something went bad and the union stepped in and they are holding the series, the league, the whatever, holding their feet to the flames and all in the interest of the athlete that is in that union. In this case, can't expect such things to happen until the folks who are the actual body of that union have expectations for such things to happen. Right now, together as one, Even if it's a majority, it's not there. So, yeah, great idea. They got to make it happen. Uh, Ryan, you're back. Ryan Terpstra. Let's get Robin Miller on the line. I want to know the betting odds uh, are on the drivers for the 10 car next year. Hashtag Chip likes winners. Uh, Jim Cook asks, will there be three or four cars for Chip Ganassi Racing next year? Uh, I am told that they absolutely intend to be four and they do not plan on downsizing to three and placing Jimmy Johnson in the soon-to-be-departed Felix Rosenquist number 10 NTT Data Honda. Uh, Ralph Hibbard, hey, Ralph, uh, who is in line for the Rosenquist seat at Ganassi? Is it going to be Jimmy Johnson part-time? So know that it's not going to be Jimmy. I don't have a really strong answer for this. I know that in what I wrote in the Silly Season Part 3, that ask you is certainly a really good fit for it, but how's this? There was a question somewhere. No, I don't think it was for the week in IndyCar here, but there was a question of, um, hey, Sebastian Bourdais was the original choice for that seat uh, before Ed, Car- uh, Ed Carpenter, good Lord. Ed Jones went into it, and then Felix afterwards. Sebastian couldn't get out of his contract with Coyne. What about now? Is there any way he could go back even though he signed with Foyt? There's no way he can go back. So if he was available, do I think they would sign him immediately? I think the answer is yes. Right now, I don't know what the number is, Ralph and Jim and Ryan, on what would it take to be in that vehicle. Uh, I know that there's some budget that needs to be found. I don't know what the percentage is. Is it half a budget? three quarters of a budget, 25%. I don't know. But 
I think if there is a mythical front-running, race-winning potential driver who also has a budget to bring, that'd be pretty hard to ignore. I know that there's, what, five months or so until the next season begins. Would Chip and company, of course, love to have the full budget in place? Driver they go and hire, signed off on, and get all that done by tomorrow? I'm sure. But we're not in panic mode time-wise, so... I have to think they're going to use some of the time here uh, remaining in the year to continue searching for sponsorship so that the number 10 car is whole and they can hopefully hire who they want. The next question is, who do they hire? Well, as I mentioned, Oliver Askew really does stand out as a very, very strong candidate. Um, we The next question here from Cody D, uh, DW12 you ask about rumors of Kevin Magnuson being out of the Haas Formula One seat. Uh, yes, expecting that to be confirmed here. I'm told that that is indeed a done deal of him being gone. Um, would I think Kevin Magnuson would interest them? I certainly would. Uh, no oval experience, though. Eh, that might be not something they're super happy about. And back to the main point of funding. Uh I don't know what Kevin Magnuson expects to earn per season. I can guarantee you he was probably making more driving a Haas to fairly poor finishes because the car hasn't been good than it costs to run an entire season (laughs) in an IndyCar. So my guess is his income level exceeds the annual budget for anything anyone might be able to offer him. Would he say, all right, well, money's not a huge issue. I just want to go do something again. I don't know. I would love to see the guy come over here, but budget, getting that sorted for the 10 car, is that done with a driver who brings some money? Is that something the team completes on their own and then they can hire somebody? Those are the two main options. The budget to run the car is certainly not going to include paying a Kevin Magnuson unless He's willing to come in on a cut-rate deal. So this is the little bit of the head-scratcher here, guys. Mark, you ask how feasible is it to get Seb out of the commitment. Again, I I wish, uh, no disrespect to the Foyt team, but I'd love to see Seb's farewell to IndyCar, however many additional years he wants to be here, to be in a front-running seat next to his good friend Scott Dixon. Uh Wrong place, wrong time for Seb for many years now, and I, I hate that for him. But uh, as Juan Montoya loves to say, it is what it is. One thing I'd love to hear from y'all, probably not you, J.J. Gertler, because you come up with some crazy stuff, but who do you think? What are some of the ideas you all have for who would be a proper fit for the 10 car, knowing hashtag Chip likes winners, knowing that the last two drivers they have attempted to put next to Dixon to be the one-two punch and hopefully succeed him one day haven't, hasn't worked out. i got to believe that's still a thing, right? We don't know how much longer Scott's going to drive, but uh, they certainly would want to have someone they're developing or, or ready to step in and win right away next to him. Who would that be? Who would you go after? Either someone that might have some money to bring, or someone who, let's assume the seat is totally filled. Uh, yeah, send me some thoughts. Uh, I know I have a couple. There's one driver I'm intentionally not mentioning, 
and it's way the hell off the record, um, not even to the point of, of suggesting it here. Um, there's one driver who, if they get named as the driver of the number 10 Honda, um, I was going to say, I'll write it down on a piece of paper and, and, and put a timestamp on it. So, you know, I'm not just pulling out of my butt if they do get announced, but yeah, there's a significant driver I'm aware of who may or may not have inquired. And if that were to happen, Ooh, silly season episode four is going to get written. Uh, boy, that's going to be a lot of words because that's going to be a crazy thing to take place. So do I think it will? Uh, I don't know. But if it were to, holy poop. Uh, so, Cody, back to your question. And also level two from Reddit. Uh, you mentioned it also makes almost too much sense for uh, Kevin Magnuson to fill Felix's vacated seat. So he's been pretty candid that he'd like to do IndyCar when he's done an F1. Uh, and he says, I don't see anything preventing him from having a Sato-esque career revival. Uh, Cody also mentioned uh, I was connected with an IndyCar ride back in 2016 before being recalled by McLaren uh, and comes with some financial backing. Uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to remember. I thought that there was some sort of Andretti angle that I might have written about, I don't know, um, of those two talking or expressing an interest or something. So... If someone's ready to pay Kevin, I think it's an option. If it's a seat that we're looking at right now and we can't say that it's good to go, it's budgeted and let's go rock and roll, that's probably where there's going to be pretty significant stumbling points. And if it happens, it's going to be more fantasy stuff than actual, well, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, that's going to happen. Everything's aligned. Off we go. Let's see. we got a couple of questions here. Uh, from, I need a name, please. Ed Joris and Bob Gravel talking about Antonio Felix da Costa. So got a little bit of insight on this, this week, realize this Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. I don't even, not only do I not know what day it is, I don't know how to pronounce what day it is. I'm not even drunk y'all. And, uh, if I decided to take some time at the beginning of the episode to delve into a couple of things going on in and around the home front, uh, nothing to worry about, but just, yeah, uh, let's just say could use a little bit of sleep, uh, if not a lot of sleep. So Ed Joris, Bob Gravel, I need a name, please. You're asking about Portugal's delightful Antonio Felix da Costa. Uh, let's go with, I need a name, please, to kick things off. How likely is it that AFDC's test with RLL materializes into something significant between the two? I'm just going to go. Uh, I know the release said Antonio has pleaded to Bobby to let him test. Graham's awaiting the birth of his child. Um, but utilizing a test day merely for a joyride seems dubious. And as we've seen in the case of Felix Rosenquist, Alex Pillow, soon Scott McLaughlin, even Ricky Taylor at Homestead, these tests lead to something uh, more often than not. Great point. Absolutely great point. That was my suspicion as well. Hey, uh, totally get the Graham part, but uh, what about Takuma? And was told he's expected to be at home in Japan at the point where this test is taking place here in, what, a week or two. 
uh, after the season finale. So there's that. So in theory, both drivers would indeed be unavailable. There is this BMW link, long-standing link, that has Bobby Rahal and uh, Antonio having conversated about this happening. Is this a precursor? Right, so this would be the the natural question. Hey, Graham Rahal's not going anywhere. We know that, but Takuma Sato, he's what forty three, forty four, expecting an announcement whenever, not too far from now, that new contract is in place. I don't know how long it'll be a year with a one year option. Who knows? But we could say that it might not be too many years uh, from now where an announcement that. The delightful, truly delightful Takuma Sato is hanging up his IndyCar helmet, right? That might not be totally strange or a total shocker. Therefore, could testing Antonio be something that they're looking to the future? Uh, Maybe. I did speak with Bobby last week after this was announced. Um, I think he was on pain meds, so I really tried not to ask him anything serious. Uh, Just wanted to catch up, see how he was doing. Uh, recovering from his hip surgery and whatnot, back surgery, I should say. Um, Didn't ask about this. Probably should have if I was doing my job properly, but I wasn't, so I didn't. Could young Mr. DaCosta be in mind for something however far down the road? Sure, of course. Here's the take-home, though. Formula E drivers get paid (laughs) amounts of money that are just quadruple ridiculous compared to anything an IndyCar driver might hope to make. And this is what makes Mr. DaCosta's curiosity of climbing into an IndyCar awesome. He's wanting to do it, see if he likes it. I'm sure in the back of his head he's thinking, could this be somewhere down the road? I'd say very possibly. But right now, for as much money as he and the vast majority of Formula E drivers are making, it would be something where his financial planner, parents, grandparents, everyone would say, dude, what are you doing? You are robbing your future financial security by doing this now or soon. He's still a young-ish guy, if I recall, apologize i don't have his exact age in front of me but you know 28 29 something like that um he's got plenty of time um what i would say is will we be seeing him anytime soon i don't know if that really fits something that makes sense both he's 29 uh financially and also i can't even tell you contractually how long his deal is right now with his formula e team is this something where two years from now, maybe year two, three, whatever, it's something he might consider having earned a buttload of money to where he doesn't need IndyCar to pay him uh, crazy, crazy amounts. I would say that might be the timeline I would put my brain towards. So even if Takuma decided to announce right now that he was retiring, it would still be pretty crazy y'all to hear that he has decided to come here knowing that there is so much money that he'd be leaving on the table at a relatively young age in the sport and also knowing that as we are all aware there aren't a lot of places in racing that aren't formula one or nascar where a top driver can make 
buttloads of money. So get it while you can, and once you've got it, then maybe you can go and play and do some other more passion-based stuff. Uh, Hopefully that covers off all your questions there. We aren't too far away from the end of the episode, which is hopefully a good thing. Uh, We do have a part two, as I mentioned, so we'll get to that as quickly as I can. Where do we go next? We go to Sagun Yo. Hey, Marshall, any suspicions about Juan, Mon, Toya, and what he might be doing next year? I thought the doors open for that spam ride, but in a recent Instagram Live, he said that these IMSA races could very well be his last in race cars. It says, what a shame that would be. Uh, I'm going to take a sip of water here. I sent Juan Montoya's contact info to an IndyCar team owner yesterday who had some thoughts on some drivers, and I said, I love what you're thinking there. I would also say that if you aren't calling Mr. Juan Monterrier and getting a feel for his interests, uh, you'd be crazy because I might put that guy above all the people you're considering. So I know of that. I know, as we've discussed on the show, some talks with some teams. Can't tell you if they went beyond brief chats or texts, but there have been some with some other teams. I think his run at Lamar impressed folks, and could that open up some calls to do more European sports car racing? I think it could. So do I believe the end of the 12 hours of Sebring on November 14th will be Juan Montoya's swan song as a professional race car driver. I do not unless he wants it to be that way. Now, are we talking, he's going to have an amazing thing offered to him and he's going to keep driving for another two, three, five years. I don't know if we're there, but I do think I frankly just need to call him and catch up and see where his head is at. Although he's really cagey about this stuff. Like, I was trying to put together a story of, like, hey, the Acura Team Penske thing is going away. What are your thoughts? And it took multiple calls and a lot of asking the same question over and over again in different ways to get him to say kind of, sort of, yes, I do want to keep going. (laughs) So do I think he's at a place where he needs to recognize that this is going to be the farewell tour doesn't have to be one year. I don't know. It could be however many years he wants, but this is going to be select stuff. Um, at an age, what is he? 43, four five, whatever it is. He's at an age where he knows the calls are not going to be coming in as frequent frequently as they once did. And if there are things in the sport, he either wants to do more of meaning things he's been doing, but wants to continue, whether it's IndyCar, sports cars, whatever. Awesome is are there events I've always wanted to race on the full Nürburgring and do the 24 hours of the ring or name whatever Bathurst 1000. Here we go. Probably staring at that Sagan, yo, that place where pick and choose the things that are meaningful to you and speak them into existence and make them happen. Because I don't know if, There's going to be a lot of calls offering him really amazing things where you go, oh, 
Indy 500 with this team, Le Mans with that team. I think there could be one or two more of those in his future, but I think he needs to really, if he hasn't, uh, write a list, if he even wants to, of the events he still wants to do before the clock is wound down to zero. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to our good pal, Jerry Robert Suduth. says, if the IMS Museum decided to give you one of the cars in their collection, oh, man, Jerry, what are you doing to me here? Uh, which would you pick and why? Huh. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Can I just say yes and they all come home? One. Oh, what are you doing to me? Let's see. Part of, you know, granted, I don't. I don't know if they own all of these things, right? I'm just talking about things that I've seen on display. I haven't seen the, the bill of goods on them, but my first thought was smoky Unix sidecar, because that's about as crazy as you're going to get. Another thought was Johnny Rutherford's 500 winning chaparral yellow submarine. Um, I mean, that'd be amazing. And in this, again, this is all assuming that I could fit in these things and could drive them. I think y'all have probably heard me talk enough about, uh, two other cars though, where that's where I'm going to lead. And I'm not sure which one I'm, I'm going to go with, but, uh, what Bobby Unser's 72 pole winner, um, the 16 mile per hour jump from year to year, that beautiful Eagle turbocharged offy with a thousand plus horsepower i mean that just seems like it is divinity passed down from the heavens but i would say the one you've probably heard me talk about at whatever points in the past this is just it's all american stars and stripes and everything that is just so amazing for me and that is looking back to jimmy murphy that is looking back to one of my true IndyCar heroes. Uh, also, not a surprise, being a San Francisco guy, he is and has been a hero of mine as someone born within minutes of San Francisco. Uh, this is a guy who I just, yeah, um, idolize for his grit and determination and achievements. So the... Duesenberg that he drove. Um, I mean, come on. Uh, we're talking about not only the 1921 French Grand Prix winning machine, the first American driver and car to win a Grand Prix race, European Grand Prix race, but then also that same car winning the 1922 Indianapolis 500, that beautiful white doozy painted number 12. Um, I mean, that that's just that's just everything to me and the fact that it's powered by a miller engine also another absolute american hero of mine i don't know what it's worth uh right i i couldn't tell you what it is worth i can tell you that historically for where it fits in motor racing as an american for what it has achieved both in winning the indy 500 and also in winning uh, the year before uh, the French Grand Prix. This was at Le Mans, by the way. Um, that is the car that I would absolutely take home. And again, I would love to know what it is appraised at value-wise because I know in my head it's worth about $111 billion 
or what it achieved, who drove it, where it did, what it did, uh, that kind of dual identity between the engine uh, being made in Los Angeles, the chassis itself coming from what I believe Indiana. Sorry if I'm getting my Duesenberg history wrong, but anyways, yeah, that's the car for me. I I love every single thing about it. Um, hey, here's a little piece of news uh, that I knew about, but it actually came through in an email uh, of a driver announcing a new Extreme E team. So there's a funny thing, and I'll just share this with you because why not? And if you care, great. And if you don't, sorry for wasting your time. So in the media, uh, this little thing that I do, you get many things that are embargoed. Hey, this release is coming out tomorrow. We're going to announce a new driver, new this, whatever it is. In most instances, there is a conversation prior to the receipt of that release. Some sort of relationship of, hey, doing this thing uh, can tell you, who knows, maybe can't tell you what it is, but if you agree to hold this thing under strict embargo until tomorrow or whenever at whatever time the release is going live we will happily share it with you but we need usually written confirmation you know reply to this email that you agree and therefore that's your bond that you're going to hold this then you get some other things which again i appreciate it but just got a release here from the extreme e series i don't know anyone there other than i think gilda farron uh but he certainly isn't the one writing the press releases and uh i appreciate that they got my email address from wherever and they send me stuff it's just weird when you get a press release saying this person joins the series and it's a pretty important name and below it it says strict embargo until a particular time in the future and uh okay <laughs> i didn't i mean you've sent me all the information without ever having a conversation i'm not going to do anything with it i'm just saying it's a bit of a weird kind of expectation like oh we're going to send you something and tell you it's embargoed and even though we don't know one another and you have no reason to use it not use it or you know you're free to do as you please uh we're just going to expect that you honor our wish it's a it's a weird thing gonna honor it of course because that's what you do but still it's just really weird so i don't know if that means anything to you but at least in terms of how these things kind of play out uh you don't normally just drop information into someone's lap who you don't know and say oh by the way yeah don't say anything about that like well what if i want to say something about that i didn't agree your embargo does any of that stuff interest you i have no idea here we are though uh we're down to our last two questions for the week uh, and then I'll take a look below and see if there's any we want to get into in overtime. And we're just, we're not even at an hour yet. So, man, I'm feeling good. Either I'm speaking quickly or, no, it's not a crazy amount of questions. So, woo uh, Let's see. Where do we go here for these last two? JJ Gerler. Oh, man, you're back. Oh, come on. What are you doing? Um, Marshall, there are all kinds of lists out there. Greatest driver ever. Best road course racer, best driver who is Allen's brother, and the list goes on. Today's question, what is your all-name team? Put together your IndyCar team with the most colorful name drivers and crew members. My nominees would have to be Stingray Rob and Racing Gardner, but who are yours? 
Well, considering only one of them have driven an IndyCar, uh, I'm not going to limit myself to IndyCar drivers because one of them isn't. So I I love the guy. Uh, would call him a, a pal. I just am eternally delighted when I hear folks pronounce the name of Dutch sports car ace Renger van de Zanda. And when our man A.J. Allmendinger pronounces it, he throws in at least an extra letter that's not in his name, possibly some others. He just does it in a sing-song way, Renger van der Zander. And I don't know if there's a er and a er. There's a couple extra R's in there. But if you watch an IMSA race and AJ gets the chance to ring out good old Renger's name, you get Renger Vanderzander. And so, yeah, I would love that. Could you imagine Paul Tracy trying to pronounce that accurately for three hours uh, late in May at the 500? Oh, that would be high comedy. Just high comedy. Uh, let's see. Uh, who who else comes to mind here? Uh, uh, boy, you're stumping me a little bit, and it's because yeah, brain power struggle, slight amount. Uh, I'm just gonna go with Renger for now, JJ. Maybe as I asked about uh, good choices for the ten car driver. Maybe some of you could help here with the most colorful names or interesting or wacky names for IndyCar drivers or those who should be IndyCar drivers to throw into the mix. Uh, Let's see. All right, Daniel Summersgill, you're going to end the official show. He says, being a member of the Prue Day, should I? I'll just share again. This is a pretty fun little collective of listeners that sprouted up. And you guys are insane, and I thank you, Um, which is modeled after my favorite WWE tag team, The New Day. Uh, He says, I was wondering if the WWE bought an IndyCar team, which WWE superstars and personalities, past or present, would you have as part of your race team in pit crew, and who would be crew chief, etc.? Oh, here we go. Uh, Let's see. I think Booker T would be the physio right because he'd also be teaching the drivers and the crew how to do the spinneroonie right a little bit of break dancing so that would be cool uh let's see personalities i think for i think pr rep right pr rep and you know someone who can definitely do any and all public speaking for the team that's a i'm a paul Heyman guy so we got Paul Heyman there for sure. Also, if you're not a fan of WWE or WWF and know nothing about it, I realize that this is maybe not the question in the show. So uh, have a good evening. Um, who else? I'm trying to think of drivers. Drivers, this is going to select someone from the New Day. Uh, the driver would be Kofi Kingston. That guy is so versatile, so skilled, and has had such a long career where he, he feels like the Scott Dixon of WWE just immensely skilled always entertaining doesn't always win but it feels like wins more often than not um respected and revered by everyone in the organization maybe doesn't have the full fan crowd love that he deserves so yeah I think Kofi 
Kingston is our driver. He's our Scott Dixon for sure. Uh, strategist. Who is the strategist? Uh, that'd have to be Triple H, wouldn't it? Um, I mean, I know it's the personas of him being the mental assassin and the whatever. It, we'd go with him for that. Who would be the engineer? Uh, boy, you said past or present. I'm also wondering if Macho Man is the team's PR rep because that'd be pretty amazing to get him, have him do, uh, oh boy, have him do some promos for the team. That'd be kind of fun. But yeah, I think Paul Heyman for sure. Uh, good Lord, where else do we go here to, to round this out? Um, Chief Mechanic, you asked. Probably be one of the high flyers. Uh, Lucha, Luchador for sure. I'm not sure who, but someone in that realm um engineer where do we go here uh wow again i'm sorry my creativity is faltering and 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 really not great daniel and everyone but yeah the it's been a bit of a week so i know that's an excuse and i suck for using it but it's it's a bit of a real thing uh all right that's the end of the show uh, that our pal Tim Falkowitz, who puts together our questions, that's the end of the show in terms of all the questions above the line of death. So I'm going to say thank you to the Cooper Tires Company, to the beautiful Justice Brothers Company, to TorontoMotorsports.com, also TorontoMotorsports.com in a less slurred pronunciation, and then finally Bell Racing Helmets USA. Now I'm going to look through the items below the line of death and see if there are any that jump out to throw into overtime here, knowing that, I mean, we're not even at an hour yet, 58-ish minutes, um, unless I decide to edit some things out, and then you'll wonder why what I mentioned for where we are at, timestamp-wise, doesn't match up to what you see that you're listening to. Um, Ryan Terpster, you're back, asking about drivers and contracts, and when a, uh, I think as I mentioned or wrote from what Chip Ganassi told me about Felix Rosenquist's that uh, his he was contracted to the team until the end of the year. Your curiosity is, are we talking calendar year, December 31st, or last race of the season? I don't know, because there's no hard or fast rule, or common everybody does things in this way or that way. I will say that if a driver is leaving, you will often hear some form of negotiation to wrap things up before whatever end of the official relationship is listed as being. So that's where I can't answer this because I don't know the answer, but I know that the answer usually is provided by how pissed off the team owner who has driver A under contract, who is going to leave the team and become someone else's driver A, really depends on how pissed off that team owner happens to be. Because in some instances, we hear of the pissed off team owner who says, no, screw you. I'm not releasing you until the last second of your contract. And for whatever reason they feel upset uh, because I, a 
competitively, maybe that's a thing, right? I don't want you in their building. I don't want you over there. Uh, I have you under contract. You are not allowed per contract to mingle with the enemy. So great. You have not re-signed with us, but your contract with us does not end until date X. And you sure as hell are not going to be over there uh, doing whatever with them until the end of what we've agreed to by contract. Now, okay, so the next question, and I know this is probably where your mind is heading, Ryan. So can you, how do you stop someone? Can you physically prevent someone? I mean, no, of course. Do you hire a private investigator to follow driver A everywhere and make sure that they aren't going to their new team? Uh, If they go to dinner, is it their new team owner that they're dining with? Is that a breach of contract? Again, you know, what if they now in the era of Zoom everything, uh, are you able to prove that they aren't holding Zoom conversations with whomever on their phone compared to something, I don't know, maybe a team-issued laptop where they could verify, again, you know, are there ways to skirt around? Of course. You also pretty often get to a situation where if things have truly gone bad, if there are mutual bad feelings, uh, you got to think about the overarching health and benefit of the team. And if you have really angry driver who is being forced to come in and do this, that, and the other, and has this obligation and that obligation, and even though they're leaving, there's still some sponsor stuff they have to do, and they got to whatever, 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 and they are just bristling uh, at the notion, it's not going to help anybody. Uh, It's not going to help the team. It's not going to help the driver. Also, the minute a driver signals they are leaving, uh, you tend to get a bit of a shutdown of any and everything that might leave with them. Uh, intellectual property, whatever it might be, spring rates, uh, all those things. So I would say that the minute the team got wind that Felix was departing, uh, he stopped getting all the invites to all the fun stuff that all the cool kids are doing within the team because we're not putting this information in front of you. We're not welcoming you into any additional meetings that we normally would, but might, who knows? We don't, hey, We're having to treat you as a hostile witness. That often is the case, if not as always the case, when you learn about drivers leaving before the end of the season. That's why so many teams try and wait until the end of the season to make these things known. Um, Then you have the point that I was getting to there, Ryan, of, well, maybe we just need to cut bait. Yeah, I could hold you up and screw you and whatever uh, and make you unavailable to that team to test and do anything until January 1st. Keep in mind, there's always usually some off-season testing. So is that something that the current team could prevent that driver from doing with a new team? Absolutely. So depending on the nature of the relationship, how it ended, and there's also another aspect too that's a little bit fun, Ryan. So, hey, you're under contract with us until the end of the year or whatever the point is. And you want to get out of it early to start your new relationship. Okay, well, we're going to have to negotiate. And this is probably going to cost you something. Now, do you end up paying it or does your new team end up paying it? You know, know, that's up for debate. But uh, whether it's a travel expenses, all right, well, hey, you've got an invoice in for 
whatever 20 grand in travel expenses make that invoice disappear maybe we can talk about letting you go a little bit early or name a variety of other things there's usually some form of okay this is gonna you're gonna bleed a little bit Uh, we're not gonna make this easy for you and tell us how you're gonna give up something to make us want to do this to help you because we're probably not feeling too warm and fuzzy. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff in here uh, that I should probably dedicate to a podcast series at some point in time. When it all goes wrong, tell us about it, and it's unlikely it's going to be current drivers. It'll probably be retired drivers, and who knows if they would even name the teams. But that might be something fun to explore, Ryan, and hopefully because you're good at this, uh, I'm going to forget it. So please remind me at some point in time if you think that's a worthy uh, podcast series to try and put together. Uh, let's see. Stitch Turner. Hold on. Is this a Stitch Turner question? I like those Stitch Turner questions. Hey, Marshall, how do us truckies get into IndyCar? Do we need to move to Indy? Are there typical additional duties when the team is at home? Do you have any blackmail on a team owner I can use to get a spot? Uh, it says I'm not above bribery, but like most drivers looking to get in, uh, I don't bring a lot of funding. How funny. Uh, hopefully I can one day feed you lies and misinformation. My best to Mrs. Pruitt. Thanks, Stitch. I wish I had an easy answer. This is more often than not a relationship game. So a couple of basic things to share. We have truck drivers who, despite their official role and title, Hey, I'm the truckie for team whatever. Yeah, driving the truck (laughs) might be the shortest period of time of things you do in that role. So if we're talking at the track, there's no single thing that all truckies do. Again, of course, every team has a different approach, but it's not uncommon for truckies to also be your tire person or one of your tire people. Uh, running tires back and forth, managing tires, and so on. It's not uncommon for your truckie to do, not call it corporate hospitality, but more team-based stuff, right? Whether it's setting up an awning or, you know, again, depending on whether it's a garage or however the setup is at the particular track, uh, taking care of the team, feeding the team, could be running and getting lunch, dinner, whatever it might be, or if it's a catered thing, setting it up, looking after uh, the team. In many instances, the truckie is the den mom, den dad, really just taking care of the troops. That's the, the mindset of many, and it's pretty awesome. I am very fortunate to have worked with a number of truly incredible truckies. And while I don't get to see them nearly as often as I once did, I can think of many other roles on the variety of IndyCar teams that I worked with, Stitch, Indy Lights, Atlantic, whatever. And while I remember most of the crew members' names and faces all these years later, I can tell you that among most of the teams, the truck driver at, I think, just about every team I worked with stands out above the majority of the rest. So it's a really important thing. And then there's the obvious stuff of keeping everything clean and orderly and straightforward inside the trucks externally as well. 
keeping things polished, presentational. It could be stocking hero cards in the little you know thing outside with the little tensa barriers, the uh, the golden ropes uh, that separate fans from uh, the cars and whatnot. It's a lot of miscellaneous stuff, filling coolers with whatever water or Gatorade kind of stuff and ice and getting ice. And I mean, there's a lot of grunt work to it. Uh, It's by no means glamorous, but if you like to be needed and receive that really warm feeling of love, hopefully, unless they don't like you, but having a team that really looks to you as being the person that makes their lives easier and you take care of them and you feed them and make sure that they're in the right place to do their jobs as, as best as possible. Truckies really integral. So that's why teams who have really good truckies, how's this? You, you see a lot of older truckies at teams and it's because in many cases you find out, yeah, they started with the team 10, 20 years ago and the team absolutely does not want to let them go. So you also see some younger ones too, which is pretty cool. And frankly, they tend to carry the same kind of personality, even though they're young and maybe not, who knows whether they're married, have a family or not, can't say, but there's a character trait of, aha, I'm not here to be a cool individual. I'm not going to win an award as the crew chief of the year, the engineer of the century or whatever else. But within my own team, if I'm doing things properly, uh, you're more often than not the hero uh, and the someone who's really looked at it as really one of the true MVPs internally. As for how you get into IndyCar, I wish I could tell you. I don't know the story of exactly how any or all the truckies that I worked with got into their roles. I mean, other than it was often a friend and often in the junior open wheel level and as a team owner, team manager went up, kind of leveled up, uh, they brought their truckie pal along with them to that team. What I would tell you is if this is a true, I want to do it and I know all the sacrifice and I'm going to be gone a ton. And when we're at the shop, I am polishing everything, getting all the permits and this, that, and the others done. And the log book is absolutely straight. I'm helping to restock the trailer and I'm not just talking, you know, uh, breakfast bars. I'm talking nuts and bolts and all the inventory items needed to run an indie car and, you know, uh, working with the team manager on that list and, you know, maybe doing purchasing and going and getting parts and running stuff to and from painter, unless they do it internally or the car's wrapped there. It's <laughs> there. There's not a lot of, of boring time because you are a person who is licensed and skilled at driving an 18-wheeler and also the gopher catch-all, hey, I got something that doesn't fit my gearbox mechanics expertise. Who do I throw this thing to? Hey, uh, Fred, Bill, Stitch, whatever. Need you to go do this thing for me, please. So um, what I would suggest is this not knowing your trucking background, meaning if you've worked for a company for X and you do this, again, I don't know the details of that stitch, but if this is really something you want to do, be the person. I think the last time I saw you in person was at St. Pete. 
Uh, I don't know what the social distancing rules are this weekend, but be the guy who six feet away has conversations with our guests this week, Mike Hull, Tim Sendrick, run on down the line. Hey, I have a desire. Is there a, how could I, can I give you my information? Could, is there an email I can send to you or whomever to be on a list? I don't know, but, uh, if you want it, this is a, a people thing. It's strictly about who, you know, and the confidence they do or don't have in you and making that happen. So, all right, we're going to go to where are we going next? Uh, one or two more. Mike Jablow, hey, MP, is the IndyCar test at IMS still scheduled for October 29? Says the weather forecast is for a high of 52 degrees, I believe. I've heard nothing to say that it isn't uh, happening. Let's see. Andy Bauer, I was drifting my minivan on an I-465 on-ramp this weekend. I suddenly wonder, why does the last turn on the Indy road course seem... Uh, to be the toughest on that track from DJ Willie P's ridiculous save to ask hit earlier this year and a few other code Brown moments across other drivers. What makes that turn so much harder than the others uh, also says as always continued prayers for you and your wife. Thank you, man. So this is what one of the only corners on the track where the driver has to set the limit or their speed. So you might say, well, don't they have to do that at every other corner? True. The rest of the corners as they stand out are pretty straightforward though. We're going to break very late into turn one at the one marker, two marker, you name it, bring the car down to a certain speed. We're going to turn, go across the apex. And you know, there's, it's a bit of a point and squirt or uh, paint by the numbers type circuit. Not a lot of places where you go, ooh, I can really, I can be an individual here. And if I push harder than the others, oh, I can really, by going out into this kind of dangerous realm of traction and, whoa, boy, if I really, really go nuts and it all comes off properly, I'm going to get a couple of tents. There aren't too many corners like that. There, I wish there were, but there just aren't. The circuit itself, pretty much everywhere else, Andy, regulates the realistic speed that can be achieved. The final corner, which is long and sweeping, is one where at the downforce levels being run, knowing that there are two very long straights, so you don't want to pile on a ton of downforce or you're just going to get passed by everybody, you don't have the aerodynamic comfort blanket keeping the thing glued to the track. So that's the first thing. The car is going at a higher and higher rate of speed coming through that corner. And it's a case where drivers with the transition onto uh, the track, there is a transition. They can push. It's not automatic flat the whole way through. So there's judgment on how hard, how aggressive to be with the throttle. Then the final component is tire wear. So not crazy comforting downforce that's just going to keep the car glued whether you are hard on the throttle or not Uh, a transition that ends up happening between road course and oval plus tire degradation and with tires being worn out a bit possibly the balance being off the car has touch of oversteer heck even if it has some understeer and that 
the front of the car with that extra amount of, of input in the steering wheel finally bites and digs that then throws you into an oversteer moment at a holy crap point in the track with a transition between the uh, road course and oval that is going to upset the car couple factors here where drivers truly have to judge how hard they can push their andy have to factor in their downforce level tire degradation and the transition that's why to my surprise because i until i saw it and recognized it i too had the same question it's something that you're it's surprising how much you can get it wrong (laughs) and if not if you get it wrong by a wide margin then you're flying like dj willie p or crashing like oliver or the year before uh marcus erickson or you're just if it's not that big of a oops you're having to lift and lifting on to that long front straight is another guaranteed way to get trained uh down into the braking zone so it's really it's one of those places where you go whoa um trying to think where else is equivalent like the kink at road america uh, again, based on a lot of factors, I don't know if it's easy flat at all times. Uh, the carousel is probably the other, maybe the more accurate one, uh, leading on to the kink, uh, leading down to the kink, where that too is a how hard can I, should I push? We don't see drivers going nuts there and spinning off and crashing because they know that oh, that's a high rate of speed. Uh, let's not go nuts, but. It's another place where judgment, real judgment, uh, has to be made compared to, oh, plenty of downforce, foot is flat, not a problem to navigate. Uh, Let's see. Daniel Summersgill again. Daniel, we love you. You always send in many questions, and I appreciate that. Uh, Hashtag coming from a position of zero knowledge, which is the hashtag my weekend sports cars co-pilot graham goodwin came up with says does a level of sponsorship a driver brings to a team have an influence on their ability or likelihood to follow team orders in indycar or team orders only followed by drivers being paid by a team where the team provides the sponsorship uh let's see i don't know if this is related to felix rosenquist i've had one or more folks inquire about uh hey he's leaving and he we hear he's maybe not happy being uh dixon's kind of fall guy and and always being the pawn in Dixon's uh, strategery needs. Could he disobey orders if he wanted to or whatever? Of course he could, but he is a professional, and he also knows that, well, pissing off Chip Ganassi, that can have real-life complications, not just professional complications. Chip is a... Be be straight with Chip, and you'll be in a good place. Um, But also reputationally. If Felix were in a position where he's leading or second and Dixon is like eighth or ninth or tenth or whatever, and in order for Dixon to win, uh, Felix needs to fall behind him, is Felix going to realistically go nine, ten positions backwards to do that? I don't think they would even ask because it'd be so ridiculous. Um, it'd just be acrimony and, and yeah, not good. But, and I know that you didn't specifically ask about Felix, but it seems prescient. This is a guy who you want to leave on as good of terms as you can. Whether you do or don't love the team, you still have your reputation. You're the only one who can safeguard that thing. And leaving, showing honor, and everything else, 
that would be the expectation. Here's another just quick random thing. The team really truly wants Felix to be right there with Scott at all times. There have been some occasions this year where we've seen Felix has been ahead. Hasn't been that frequent though. So if the two of them are running right next to one another, I think that makes everyone happy. And it does potentially, if Scott needs it, give them an option where uh, we could see Felix falling back to help put a few more points in Dixon's pocket. Probably the most realistic thing to say here in this scenario, Daniel, he's leaving. He's won an IndyCar race. He's going to a very good team. We assume he's going to be well-paid for his services. I cannot think of any scenario where screwing the team, screwing Dixon, any of that stuff serves any good. And I believe he and Dixon are on good terms. You know, they're good. So this would be one of those things where you say, hey, didn't work out. Appreciate the opportunity you gave me to be an IndyCar driver. Uh, my teammates vying for a championship. Tell me what I can do to help within realistic means, and there you go. If we have a driver who is paying, there's certainly a bit of a card that could be pulled, Daniel, if desired. Hey, uh, thanks for telling me what to do, but this I'm renting this vehicle. <laughs> it's truly like a vehicle rental. Hey, yeah, I'm paying for this opportunity. If I want to stop on the lap you tell me to or go two laps longer, maybe I'll take some liberty there and do what I feel is best. Hey, you want me to move aside for somebody on my team or who knows, another team? Uh, you know, uh, maybe there's a bit of uh, at their hashtag personal discretion to see if that's something they wanted to do. But the the last thing I'll mention here, and then we're going to close and say farewell, is this sport isn't that big. It's not like there are zillions of drivers, tons of money. It's the the ratings smash, and boy, everything is just awesome, and everyone really has to treat themselves like they're under a huge, huge uh, magnifying glass. It's not that way uh, from a public standpoint. It's a pretty small and insular world. We love it, but it, it's a surprisingly small group, drivers, crew members, team owners, and so on, it doesn't take much for someone to act out of turn, whether they're paying for the opportunity or being paid to be singled out as, yeah, you're dangerous. You're not someone we can really trust or whatever level of behavior you're exhibiting. Boy, that's probably going to close some doors for you. I'd like to believe Daniel. Most drivers know that. And most drivers conduct themselves in a manner that speaks to, Hey, bigger community uh it's not really the thing here we're not under media scrutiny all the time and we're not on all the major networks every night being discussed it's it's a pretty small family and if you want to be here and be considered and have a future even if you're in your full right to say no team i'm not doing the thing you asked or to lash out or talk back or whatever ultimately you're probably hurting yourself unless it is one of the supreme greats who every team would love to have, and if the team that they're with isn't willing to take the tongue lashing or the disobedience and just deal with it, 
Um, there are very few drivers in the paddock who can openly tell whomever kiss my bleep or I'm not doing the thing you asked, or I'm going to do the thing I want to do. Uh, we're talking two, three, four of them, maybe. So since most drivers aren't in that category, Daniel, uh, we would just have to say, don't recommend it. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is our week in IndyCar listener Q and a part one. I want to say super thank you once again to the justice brothers, Cooper tires, Toronto motorsports.com and bell racing helmets, USA. Thanks to you all for everything you sent in. I think here for part one, I believe I got to all but one or two questions. So if uh, you really wanted it, send it back in for me to get through in a future episode. And we do have a part two coming up here to round things off and get us ready for the Firestone Grand Prix at St. Petersburg, where we're going to determine who is our newest NTT IndyCar Series champion and who wins that valued final leader circle contract.